service announcement from Brill Cream. Finally, someone has reinvented the wheel. Hey, uh, you're tuned into the ravings of a clown on Just Radio. <laughs> Don't argue with the ball. Roger, we'll go. It's as good as done. The complete solution for your home PC. Hey, come on in. Welcome to the Ravings of a Clown on Jester Radio. Whoa. Hello, my name is Jimmy Poppin'. I'm come on a in, have white a seat. guy. I'm not old or new, but middle school, fifth grade, like junior high. I don't know, mofo, if y'all peeps be fucking giving props to my hoe, cause she fly, but I can take the heat, cause I'm the yeah, other yeah. Sad and mad, I'm hung like planet Pluto, hard to see with the naked eye. But if I crashed into Uranus, I would stick it where the sun don't shine. Kinda like a Han Solo, baby. Han Solo, always stroking my own Wookiee on the root of all that. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. Hey, 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 come on in, have a seat. Sit yourself down, laddie. Ah, we don't need no water. Let the motherfucker burn. Burn, motherfucker. All right. Hey, welcome to the show. You're tuned into the Ravings of a Clown this Sunday, February the 10th, the year of our Lord, 2008. Lord, oh Lord. Lordy, Lordy, Lordy. Oh, Lordy, Lordy. In case anybody's uh, interested, my water's back on. Thanks for hexing. Actually did get a couple of inquiries this morning. But yeah... Apparently they fixed it uh, in the middle of the night. So, uh, or maybe it was actually fixed now that I think about it before I even hit the uh, hit the hay. But you know how I am after the show. I got just um, so fucking wasted, you know. 
But I'm all fresh and ready to go for you this evening. And such a show we have for you, as Grandma Jester would say. Got an amazing playlist featuring, oh my God, Hank Williams, Three Dog Night, Andrew Gold, The Bee Gees, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, The Who, Roy Orbison, The Young Rascals. It's a playlist that uh, just uh, doesn't ever stop. That's right. And some surprises along the way. Also, we're going to take a look at what's going on in that sick fucking world of yours. Turns out quite a bit, even for a Sunday. And uh, also, uh, we'll take a look at what's going on in that sick fucking world of mine. Also, turns out quite a bit for a Sunday. Laddies. So there you go. Also, now would be a good time to put your feet up, your head back. You do have head back mission for the duration of the show. Pour yourself a glass of something, something. Stuff yourself a bowl of something. <laughs> Hold it in deep. Let it out through your nose. And that way, it tastes just like pussy. Mmm, doggy. As my friend Jed Clampett would say. Time to turn our attention to the headlines now. From my adopted just a radio studios in a secret location outside your universe, it's time for the just a radio news. All right. There you go. Thank you. That was very uh, apropos. Car bombs and gunmen struck uh, new U.S. allies. Police uh, and civilians today in northern Iraq killing as many as 53 people. 53 people were killed today in Iraq. The spate of attacks came 53 people um, just in one day. I'm sorry if these numbers, if you're like swimming in these numbers. Yesterday it was 99. The day before it was 106. It's just we got to, you know, we can't, can't ignore these numbers. Wouldn't be responsible. The spate of attacks came even as the American military, you know, now people expect news to like be entertaining like the John Stewart show and the, everything's about the comedy, you know. The John Stewart show, if the story doesn't uh, you know, if it's not if it doesn't have a couple of jokes, it doesn't lead regardless of how fucking important it is. It's not really news. I know it seems like a fun way to find out what's happening in the world, but it's not really. And we do take our responsibility. I mean, we play cool shit 20, you know, two hours a day, but these two hours that we're on every night, we're, you know, dedicated that if something's important happening in the world, we're going to bring it to you. And bring it to you before the, you know, the other, you know, the Britney Spears story. The spate of attacks came even as the American military released a captured diary and another document that they say show Al-Qaeda in Iraq cracking under a Sunni revolt against its brutal tactics. The violence coincided, so the government is, is keeping up this horseshit position that things are getting better. We hear this every fucking day. Um, they manufacture a new way of saying it every day. Today they're saying that you know they, they captured somebody's diary, and uh, you, there's other proof that uh, al-Qaeda is beginning to crack in Iraq. The comedy there, of course, the irony there, is that the U.S., by invading Iraq, brought al-Qaeda to Iraq. So 
They brought them there, and then now they're bragging about how they got them down. You know, they're beginning to crack. So all they had to do was not come, and they would have not been there to begin with. The violence coincided with a visit by... But it's not. It's not about keeping al-Qaeda out of Iraq anyway. It never was. The violence coincided with a visit by Defense Secretary Robert Gates to Baghdad, where he warned that hard choices face Iraq's political leaders on how to stabilize the country, despite promising new signs of progress towards reconciliation. So he's talking out of both sides of his fucking mouth, as usual, these, these puppets. You know, out of one side, he's saying, things are looking great, things are looking great, the Al-Qaeda's on the run. And out of the other side of his mouth, he's muttering, now uh, Iraq has to, you know, buckle down if they ever expect to stabilize and if they ever expect to, you know, for us to leave. And, of course, all that's just a setup. Because then later on, they'll say, ah, Iraq didn't fucking buckle down. It wasn't our fault. We, if only they didn't buckle we can't get them to buckle. How cold was it? They had buckles on their shoes. The deadliest bombing today was near uh, Balad, 50 miles north of Baghdad, against a checkpoint manned jointly by Iraqi police and members of an awakening group. Iraqi police said a suicide truck bomber targeted a checkpoint manned by U.S. allied fighters and Iraqi police at the entrance of a bridge in the district of Yathrib on the outskirts of Balad. Security forces opened fire on the driver, but... He managed to hit the button and blow his payload, devastating a nearby car market and other stores. Can you imagine what like a car, used car lot looks like in Baghdad? I mean, come on. It's just a funny picture. Meanwhile, up to 12,000 refugees fled Sudan's Darfur region to neighboring Chad over the weekend following airstrikes by the Sudanese military and thousands more may be coming According to a U.N. refugee agency today, the agency was bringing emergency assistance to the Chad border where the Darfur refugees were giving detailed descriptions of air attacks uh, Friday on three West Darfur towns. The refugees are destitute and terrified, said Helene Ko, spokeswoman for the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees headquartered in Geneva. They told of their villages being looted and burned and circled by militia. Most of the now, uh, these new refugees in Chad are men, and they told the U.N. that thousands of women and children are on their way. Holy moly. It's going to be a mess. And, you know, we're talking about uh, Darfur and um, Chad. You know, these are countries where they really just don't, they're, they're literally, um, they're, they're not even third world. So they don't see video cameras and TV cameras, and these people act with just the most incomprehensible, um, you know, just freedom. With absolutely no, uh, the, the you know nobody's watching over their shoulders, and they're just doing the most uh, unimaginable, ungodly shit. UN officials say the worsening situation in Darfur has been exacerbated by a recent rebel attack on the capital of neighboring Chad. Chad has accused Sudan's President Omar al Bashir of backing those rebels in a bid to prevent deployment of European peacekeeping force in the Chad-Sudan border region where some 400,000 refugees are living. Sudan's Arab-dominated government has been accused of unleashing more attacks by its allied Janjaweed militias, which are accused of committing the worst atrocities against Darfur's ethnic African communities. At least 200,000 people have been killed, 2.5 million people displaced since the violence began five years ago. On Friday, Sudanese helicopter gunships and fixed-wing aircraft bombed the towns of Serba, Saleya, and Abu Suruj while striking at rebel forces which have been 
trying to consolidate their positions in West Darfur. Mayhem beyond comprehension. Two and a half million people displaced. Uh, almost a quarter of a million people killed. And uh, it's, you know, just tribal warfare. Just the most kind of brutal, uh, you know, beheading and raping and, you know, burning down, you know, villages. Incomprehensible kind of shit. So, anyway, that's the worst of it. You're listening to the ravings of a clown on Jester Radio. Thanks for sticking it out through that. There is no, uh, you know, they say no news is good news, but I mean, you know, it's just a tough ass world out there. I know you know what I'm talking about. Hey, you're listening to the ravings of a clown on Jester Radio. It's uh, Sunday. Thank you. It's Sunday, February the 10th, the year of our Lord, 2008. Please stop by the Jester Radio chat room and uh, throw your two shekels into the thick of the fray. Join Aspo and Louie. Um, also, uh, give us a call, 646-502-8600. Get you online. As I stand alone on this moonful night, for the first time, I feel alone in life. Martha Reeves starts it out. Please don't fuck with that dial.
Yeah, man. I'm ready. Come on. Get, give it up here, baby. I'm finally ready. Up until now, not so much, but now I got it. I'm all set. Hey, you tuned into the Ravings of a Cloud on Just Radio. It's Sunday, February the 10th, the year of our Lord, 2008. Martha Reeves and the Vandellas on JR, hanging with Espo and Louis. In the Jester Radio chat room, why not stop by and say hi? 646-502-8600 is the phone number. Jester Radio is our Skype name. Head over to the website at jesterradio.com to find all different other cool things that you can do uh, with our radio station. What? Barack Obama defeated Hillary Rodham Clinton in Maine presidential caucuses today, grabbing a majority of delegates as the state's Democrats overlooked the snowy weather and turned out in heavy numbers for municipal gatherings. Democrats in 420 May towns, uh, Maine towns, I should say, and cities were deciding how the state's 24 delegates will be allotted at the party's uh, national convention in August. Despite the weather, turnout was incredible. Party executives uh, director Arden Manning said, with 91% of the participating precincts reporting Obama-led in state delegates over... Clinton, 1878 to 1305, with 17 uncommitted. Uh, you know, you, <laughs> 1,800 people? I, I don't understand. How many people are there in Maine? How many people are there in America? There's 300 million people in America, and they're, and they're, and they're at each other's throats over 1,800 people? I just don't fucking get it. I mean... I do understand that once upon a time, several hundred years ago, this country, we were a republic for practical purposes. We voted for people who voted for people who voted for people. We couldn't all get to Washington. We couldn't all go listen to these people, you know, give their speeches. We had to trust interim people. But not so much anymore. We can get on TV and watch all these candidates and hear what they have to say. So why are we reading in the news that, that how many millions and millions and millions of dollars were spent on convincing those 1,878 people to vote for Clinton? It's just unbelievable. 17 people uncommitted. 17. We're actually talking about 17 people when there are 300 million people in the, in the country. Obama exulted in his recent victories in Maine and elsewhere, telling a crowd of 18,000 uh, this evening in Virginia Beach that we have won on the Atlantic coast, we've won on the Gulf Coast, we've won on the Pacific Coast and places in between. Obama won at least 13 of Maine's delegates. And, the, you know, really, who are these fucking people? Who the fuck are these people? How do they represent the interest of the po population of America? Why are they deciding such incredibly weighty issues? Why so few? Why and and then you ask yourself, why is my government so, uh, um, you know, geared towards uh, uh, the you know this this tiny little uh, special interest? Who the fuck are these people? Obama won at least thirteen of Maine's delegates to the national convention. There are uh, three still left to award. Clinton won at least eight in the overall race for the nomination. Clinton leads with 1,135, including separately chosen party and elected officials known as superdelegates. I guess they get an extra long blowjob to get their vote. Obama has 1106. The voting came a day after Obama and Clinton made personal appeals 
uh, here and after Obama picked up wins in Louisiana, Nebraska, and Washington. Organizers had expected heavy participation at the caucuses, but snow is falling. Gusting winds hit as many of the gatherings um, as many the, uh, of them were uh, scheduled. The weather didn't appear to have hurt the turnout, however. Caucuses started late in Bangor and several other locations across the state because so many people showed up and they were lined up outside the doors. In Maine's largest city, Democrats carrying Obama and Hillary signs waited to get into the citywide caucus at Portland High School in separate lines that snaked nearly three blocks in opposite directions. Colin Johnson, an Obama supporter in, in Portland, said the Illinois senator is not a typical politician. I'm convinced he's a once-in-a-generation leader, he said. From what? From what? I'd love to know. Colin Johnson, no offense. I'm assuming this guy is black, and he's picking the fucking black guy. I'm just going with the black guy. And, you know, it's like there's this great story about these... Uh, uh, like uh, two, you know, Jew Jewish guys uh, running a business, and uh, he says, "So Schwartz," and he says, "Yes, Goldstein." He says, "Did you did you pick the new secretary?" He says, "Yes, I I put in an, an ad in the New York Times, and I interviewed I don't know maybe fifteen girls. Uh, I uh, analyzed." their uh, typing experience, I looked at their previous employment, uh, I called up the referrals, I uh, gave them a little aptitude test, a little typing skills test, and uh, I evaluated their uh, people skills, uh, I talked to them for a few minutes to see how they were with the, the, having a conversation with somebody, I gave them a telephone test where I were testing them on the phone and to listen to how they would talk on the phone. And I did uh, various other ways of evaluating their capabilities. And the other one says, so what did you decide? And he goes, ah, I think we should go with the one with the big tits. <laughs> because <laughs> this was because I think that this was our criteria all along. I think we're not picking them the, the right way. That's my point. We're picking the guy who looks good on TV. So for him to say, I think that he's a, a, a that he's a once in a generation leader. I mean, I'm trying to figure out where the fuck you get that from. He seems like a nice enough fellow, but once in a generation leader. What exactly did he lead? Young and energetic in Washington and the White House could benefit from some fresh air. That's true. That, I believe. And let me tell you a bit. He'd be a breath of fresh air. That's for sure. Because he's really not, a, you know, in the, in the grid right now. He's not, like, you know, fully in the matrix. Tony Donovan said Obama could use uh, some more seasoning. Donovan uh, was supporting Clinton because she, like him, was a baby boomer, boomer who shared so, similar values and because she has the experience and the team to lead in Washington. Obama's a great guy. He'll be great in eight years, Donovan said. He doesn't have the experience in the Senate. He doesn't have the experience in Washington. He's not ready. A line waited to get into Augusta's caucus on government. John Baldacci. You know, but a lot of people feel that it doesn't matter, this guy, it's got nothing to do with whether or not this guy's ready. It's the, it's the, they're ready to have a black guy in the White House. And, you know, for me, that doesn't work. I'm not picking the guy by the color of his skin. If he was the better guy, believe me, that would be my guy.
So I really, you know, honestly could not care less, uh, you know, where his mother is from and what his father did for a living. I couldn't give two shits about anything to do with other than how does he plan to lead the country? That's really the only criteria that I would have. But I don't know. That's that's uh, that's just me and people. And people say we got it made, and don't they know we're so afraid? John Lennon on JR. Don't touch that dial, please. People say we got it made. Don't they know we're so afraid? Isolation. Everybody got to have a home I Just a boy and a little girl Trying to change the whole wide world Just a little town Everybody trying to pull us down sun will never disappear but the world may not have many years i'm sam sam hey you're listening to the ravings of a clown on jester radio that was john lennon proving once and for all uh, where the talent was in that in those liverpool lads once they all went their separate ways it just became a you know sublimely clear as to who was contributing what to that sound. Sunday, February the 10th, the year of our Lord, 2012. 
hanging with Espo Louie in the Jester Radio chat room. Give us a call. Tell us what's on your mind. Man, it's so fucking boring in here. 646-502-8600. Democrat Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton, uh, Clinton replaced uh, her campaign manager, Patty Solis Doyle, with longtime aide Maggie Williams today, engineering a shakeup in a presidential campaign struggling to overcome rival Senator Barack Obama's financial and political strengths. So she's showing a weakness, presumably, by changing her uh, campaign manager because it means that they're not, you know, happy with the results. The surprise announcement came hours after Obama's sweep of three contests today and shortly before the Illinois senator won caucuses in Maine on Sunday. Determined to stem the tide, Clinton turned to longtime uh, confidant uh, this um, uh, Maggie Williams to manage her operations while the campaign acknowledged that she made a private visit to North Carolina this week to seek the endorsement a former rival, John Edwards, her rival Barack Obama, was planning his own meeting with uh, uh, Edwards uh, tomorrow, who confidants say uh, was torn over which candidate to back. And, you know, forgive me if I'm a little cynical, but I don't think he's torn at all. I think he's holding out. I think that, you know, when candidates back other candidates, it's only for a price, not because they really believe in something, but because they're getting something out of it. They promise them something or, you know. Campaign aides say Solis Doyle made the decision to leave on her own, was not urged to do so by the former first lady or any of the other senior members of the team, but it uh, comes as Clinton struggles to catch Obama in fundraising and momentum and faces the prospect of losing every voting contest uh, yet to come in February. Left on her own, my ass. Let me tell you, if this woman was the person to leave on her own, she wouldn't be working with Hillary Clinton. She uh, sent out an email today to tell her staff, I've been proud to manage the campaign and prouder still. To call Hillary my friend for more than 16 years, Solis Doyle wrote, Maggie is a remarkable person and I'm confident that she will do a fabulous job. Uh, Solis Doyle said that she will serve as a senior advisor to Clinton and the campaign and travel with Clinton from time to time. Williams, who serves as Clinton's White House chief of staff, joined the campaign after the New York Senator narrowly won the New Hampshire primary back on January 8th. She'll begin assuming the duties of campaign manager now. I think this is one of the most important things I could be doing, Williams told Jester Radio. I didn't think that uh, you can accept one of these jobs unless you care about the future. What? After Clinton's third place finish in Iowa, Williams and other top strategists were brought aboard to help uh, hone the political operation, sharpen Clinton's image. According to the campaign aides, Solis Doyle, who has two little kinder, made the decision to step down as campaign manager at the time and agreed to stay on until Super Tuesday. But she's uh, leaving for the children. My God, the children. And uh, Republican presidential candidate Mike Huckabee is crying foul now after John McCain's apparent victory in the Washington caucuses uh, yesterday. Huckabee's campaign released a statement today saying that it'll be exploring all available legal options regarding the dubious final results. Uh, Arizona Senator McCain was uh, announced as the victor in the caucuses with 26% of the vote. 
to Huckabee's 24%. Huckabee's campaign chairman, Ed Rollins, said Luke Esser, Washington's Republican Party chairman, chose to call the race too quickly for McCain. Rollins said uh, Huckabee was losing by 242 votes with 87% of the votes uh, continued, uh, counted rather. He said there were another 1,500 or so votes that were apparently not counted. This is an outrage, Rollins said. Rollins, and again here, folks, I, I can't stress enough, we're talking about hundreds and thousands of votes. The guy was losing by 242 votes. So they're not talking about the millions of people that are in the, the, the state of Maine or Washington or, or Arizona, wherever this is happening. They're talking about just these delegates for these parties. used to be you waited till after the election before you started calling in the courts and and challenging you know votes but now they're doing it in the caucuses Rollins said that the huckabee campaign lawyers will be on the ground in washington soon to see why the count took so long and why the vote counting was stopped prematurely it would be a disservice to every voter in washington state to not pursue a full accounting of votes cast Rollins said as i said we're prepared to go to court we're all prepared to take our case all the way to the Republican National Convention in September. Esther said today, if they can provide me with anything of substance to ask about, we'll be happy to inquire. The former Arkansas governor on Saturday won all 36 delegates at stake in Kansas and narrowly held on to win Louisiana's primary. He's hoping those results will give him momentum going into Tuesday's elections in Maryland and Virginia. However, he badly trails McCain, the likely nominee in the overall race for the delegates. Some say he should even step aside as a way to help the GOP maintain resources for the general election. Huckabee described such talk as total nonsense. Democrats haven't settled their nominee either, so for us to suddenly act like we have all have to step aside and have a coronation, I mean... An election, that's the antithesis of everything Republicans are supposed to believe, he said on Meet the Press today. We believe competition breeds excellence, and the lack of it breeds mediocrity. Hoo-ah! He actually said the hoo-ah. I'm not adding that in. He actually said, when I was quoting him, I had to do the hoo-ah. Otherwise, it would have been a dishonest quote. Huckabee said, even as he was surprised by Saturday's results, Huckabee won uh, Kansas delegates but fell short of 50% in Louisiana, the threshold needed to claim the 20 delegates that are available, 20, 2-0, 20 people. Instead, they'll be awarded at a state convention next weekend. He has pledged to stay in the race until a candidate earns the 1,191 delegates needed to secure the nomination. You heard me, 1,191, less than 1,200 people. That's what these people are fighting over. Spending millions and millions and millions of donated dollars on TV ads and dishonest mail campaigns and phony baloney push polls where they call people up and say, how do you feel about the rival's daughter being a homosexual? Oh, I didn't know she was homosexual. Okay, have a nice day. But wait, I didn't even tell you how I feel about it. Oh, that's okay. It's not even really a poll. We're just trying to piss people off. You know what I'm going to do? Here's what I decided to do. And seriously, I think this is going to help, so I want you to kind of work with me here. In a little while from now, if I'm not, you know, feeling any less sour, I promise myself I'm going to treat myself and visit a nearby tower. Now stay with me. 
because this is good. Climbing to the top, I'll throw myself off in an effort to make it clear to whoever what it's like uh, when you're standing alone. Again, naturally. Gilbert O'Sullivan, leave it right where it is. Yesterday, I was cheerful, bright, and gay. Looking forward to, well, who wouldn't do, the role I was about to play. 
But as if to knock me down, reality came around, and without so much as a mere touch, cut me into little pieces, leaving me to doubt, talk about God and his mercy, who, if he really does exist, why did he desert me in my hour of need? I truly am indeed alone, again, naturally. The uh, unbelievable Gilbert O'Sullivan on Jester Radio. Not just an amazing uh, song, but those lyrics, just uh, mind-bogglingly uh, intense and honest and um, this sort of beautiful uh, clash between very prim and proper. And if you listen to the song without really listening to the music, you would think, oh, it's almost like a happy song. Seems like the guy seems okay about, you know, lot of fucking uh, oh, sure, you know. And then he's got this sort of, you know, the word naturally at the end of every chorus. So it sort of sounds kind of snappy. And then you see it's about this guy talking about being left at the, at the, standing in the lurch of a church where people saying, my God, that's tough. She stood him up. No point in us remaining. May as well go home, as I did on my own, alone again, naturally. And then at the end, it's almost, you know, again, the, the, the melody belies that, you know, this just horrible uh, sadness in this lyric. And uh, in the end, we see he's not just uh, sad, you know, it's, it's not just this guy whining about his life. But in the end, he says, looking back over the years, whatever else that appears, I remember I cried when my father died, never wishing to hide the tears. And at 65 years old, my mother, God rest her soul, couldn't understand why the only man she had ever loved had been taken, leaving her to start with her heart so badly broken despite encouragement from me. No words were ever spoken. And then when she passed away, I cried and cried all day, alone again, naturally. Oh, like where the fuck, you know, man, I you know, go through my whole life and I struggle to, you know, express my feelings one millionth as, as well as that. And um, this guy just comes and, you know, whoa. It's a, it's um, just an incredible experience. Hey, you're on the air with uh, the jester. Who's calling? Hello. Did did we have somebody on the air? Hi, you're on the air with the jester. Who's calling? This is uh, Rupert from New York. Hey, good evening. Welcome to uh, the ravings of a clown, Rupert. How's it sound uh, over there to you? Oh, it sounds very nice to me. How's it sound to you? It sounds clear as a bell. We're still um, sort of experimenting with our telephone gizmo here. But thanks for calling in, buddy. What you doing? What's going on? Well, I'm uh, calling to find out why you're playing all these sad songs. Something going on in your life? Sad? What's it to you? Who says anything about sadness? Why do you find my heart over here. Why do you find these songs sad? Why do I find them sad? What was the first song you played? 
Let's see. I think we started out with uh, Martha and the Vandellas' I'm Ready for Love. Yeah, it broke my heart. It's a, the next song? That's a tough song. That's a sad song. As I stand alone on this moonful night, for the first time, I feel alone in life. That's just a tough, tough tune. And then we had John Lennon do Isolation. Yeah, so uh, what, you just come from a party? And then Gilbert O'Sullivan uh, followed that up with Alone Again, Naturally. Mm. Let's see. So I guess the next song would be The House on Pooh Corner. Well, you may be onto something there. I'm sorry, what would you say your name was? Danny? Rupert. Uh, you may be onto something there, Rupert, because um, I honestly, yeah, I think I am feeling kind of uh, isolated from the world lately what do you do do you live uh, with uh, you live in the middle of a downtown manhattan huh i guess you see millions of people every day no I, i'm a shut-in you are i'm a shut-in but you know people come over so and, but I, get, I get enough you do yeah but you don't have like a permanent somebody you don't have a wife or a husband or something like that going on no husband no wife what about steady pussy? Do you mind if I ask? I got that. You do? You have steady pussy? Yeah, all I want. Oh, really? So she's a live-in pussy or she comes by like several times a week? She comes by, delivers it. She delivers the pussy? Well, and that's a good deal. And cleans up and leaves. Really? Wow. Well, are you paying for this or is this coming just you lucked out? What's going on here? That's just one of God's miracles. It's, it you, is. You sit alone long enough, people come to your door. And, no, I doubt that very much. <laughs> Not the way it works? Not the way it works. You sit home and pray? Why, well, I wish some pussy would come to my door. Well, is that what happened to you? you? Well, first I had to go to the bar. Oh, I see. Okay, well, there you go. Well, at least you're getting out there. That's important, meeting people. That's always a positive step. I guess maybe I should consider doing something like that. But yeah, just need a few lines in a bar. You got any pickup lines? Well, um, sure, sure. Should I try? Yeah, Can I yeah, tell let's, you? Let's, I'll, I'll pretend to be the chick. Well, I, I, you know, what I'll frequently do is um, I'll come over and I'll, you know, sit down next to a chick and I'll say, uh, listen, unless, you know, you got something better going on in the next few minutes. Uh, can I buy you a drink? Yeah, you and what army? E okay, I hear you. I'm with you. So that's not... that's not <laughs> All right. So here's my other one. I go up to a chick and I'll say, Listen, there's a very high likelihood that the world will end within the next 72 hours. And I may be your last best hope of having an orgasm between now and then. What do you say? Uh, call me in uh, 71 hours. I gotcha. All right. Well, you got any suggestions, Rupert? <laughs> For lines? Yeah. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine, a girlfriend of mine once said that this line worked on her. She was fucking in the bathroom five minutes after this line. All right. Let's hear Guy walks by her. She's sitting at the bar and says, uh, this face is leaving. 
you'd better get on it. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, that probably made her very wet. Was this yeah. like around the time people were doing a lot of cocaine? No, no. It was just plain bar horniness. Uh huh. Well, I hear you. Well, I don't think I'm going to try that one. I know I about. I never actually had a line. I know about a guy who used to. Uh, go up to chicks and he used to say hey what do you say me and you pick up a six pack go back to my place and do the horizontal mambo and uh, I said to him didn't that get you you know slapped in the face a lot and he would say yeah but once in a while you know some chick would go home with me so but um, I guess there's also that uh, story about the guy who walks up to this chick <laughs> And he says to her, um, hey, what do you say, uh, you and me go back to my place and, um, you know, f and, and fuck. And then the chick just starts beating the living shit out of him and bashing him in the face, hitting him over the head with a stool. And then they're taking him out into the, into the um, ambulance. And as they're taking him out of the club, they pass by the chick, and he says to her, so I suppose a blowjob is out of the question. <laughs> do, you hear, uh, do you ever hear of Albert Brooks' Playboy cartoon? No. He's got, it's just like a one-panel deal. <laughs> this guy working behind the counter in like a, uh, like a little art. What is know, this from, a, a comedy stand-up routine? No, no, this is from Playboy. Uh-huh. He submitted this one. I see. He, this guy working in like a frame shop with prints and stuff like that. Right. All of the walls. And a beautiful woman comes in and he says, I live up. <laughs> he says, you want to go upstairs and fuck? <laughs> he works in an etching store, basically. I see. <laughs> I got you. Because in the old days, they would ask chicks up to see their etchings. Yeah, you know, you want to know what my father's line was? What? Go up to a girl and say, uh, "Do you like opera?" <laughs> <laughs> She'll say no. He says, "Want to fuck?" <laughs> uh, That's how I was born. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm not sure what that. I'm not sure how that. Uh, how how you. What the, why you would do it that way? Yeah, just being smooth. <clears throat> Oh, is that is that super smooth? <laughs> well, he was a smooth. He was a smooth yeah, dude. You know, just didn't man. have time to fool around. I gotcha. I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, no, I see. That's funny. You didn't have time to fool around. All right. Well, thanks for calling in, Rupert. Do appreciate yeah, it. Right. Uh, call in again real soon. Hey, you're listening to the ravings of a clown on Jester Radio. That was Rupert calling in from New York City, and it's Sunday, uh, February the. I don't know, maybe 10th or something? And maybe the year is 2008? That just seems incredibly large to me. It just seems that for the longest time, I was I kept thinking to myself that in 2000, I was going to be 40 years old, and that was, seemed so incomprehensible to me. Like, really just being like, it, you could have been saying I would be 90 years old. And then all of a sudden, one day it was 2000 and I was 40 years old. And now, it seems like a half hour later, it's eight years past that. I don't know, man. And here I am, holed up in the uh, you know basement here, 
talking to you all. God knows who the fuck you people are. You could be right outside my window. You could be a million miles away. I don't know anything about any one of you. And I tell you all this personal stuff about myself. And, you know, back in the day when I when there were literally like, you know, 10 people listening, uh, I would talk about anything, you know, my parents and my uh, my wife and, you know, my kids, because nobody in the world listened. My parents and my wife weren't listening, and I was talking about them. And then, you know, throughout my whole marriage, uh, my wife never listened to the show. She sat at the top of the stairs a few times and claimed to listen to shit, but I honestly don't know how much she could have heard from up there anyway, certainly not any of the music, you know, so. But... Um, as people started listening and as the show started getting bigger and bigger, we're doing this almost 10 years now. Um, over the years, I went through different stages of like wondering, ah, should I say that? And who's listening and like worrying about who was listening really put a kind of crimp on my, you know, honesty. I mean, above all, this is, I want, you know, I wanted my relationship with you to be the most sacred. That's why I invented this, you know, phony baloney persona and, uh, you know, this whole story about where um, I am so that we can never know each other. It was purpose. It was a purposeful mask so that our relationship would always be 100% pure, anonymous. And there's no possible way that you could know who I am. And that's what made it possible. That's what made it so pure. And but over the years, you know, started to obviously the, the people in my life started to listen more, and then the people that were listening became more in my life, and uh, you know, so then I started getting more and more uptight about what I was talking about. Certainly, couldn't talk about this or that if I thought that or that that person was listening, or if that person's kid was listening. God forbid, or you know, that person's ex something something was listening made things really complicated. And then, so I think that may have spoiled our relationship, yours and mine, a little bit. So I'm thinking, you know what, fuck it, because the truth is I'm working really, really hard, like on a superhuman level. I know it sounds like whiny, but the truth is I'm really working much harder than I should be or that I really want to be at getting into the grid, getting into this feeling that people in the world like me and approve of the way I'm living my life and the and what I you know choose to do and the amount that I accomplish and the amount that I what I value and what I don't value I'm sort of like pretty much fed up with any of that meaning a fuck to me anymore and to tell you the truth I'm sort of coming full circle uh in that uh, I know they're listening, and I'm staying it fucking anyway, because I'm just not getting it. 48 years old, there really doesn't seem to be a great likelihood of things, you know, changing in terms of my mental health. Um, you know, dramatically in the in the very near future, it seems to me like it's been for my whole life. It's going to be these teeny tiny little incremental steps forward with a lot of fucking you know i'm like a high maintenance dude is what i'm saying here i'm saying to for somebody to choose to be in my life it's gonna it's it comes with this like ridiculous 
uh, cost. That can't possibly be worth it uh, unless you got literally nothing going on, in which case I have no interest in you. So you see, it's complicated, my friend. Yet, while I do all of this, of course, the downside is that I'm actually living inside this life. It's not really just a mental experiment, a brain movie, as backward Bob Lincoln would say. It's um, actually my life. And uh, when it's not so interesting, it's tragic. You know, it's fucking miserable and sad and lonely and isolated. And uh, it's the exact opposite than what I always thought myself I would have. I always thought I would be like married at a very young age and you know, have a nice big family and big house and this permanent thing where everybody feels great about coming home for all the holidays. That's what I always assumed that I wanted and was going to have my whole life and what I did, used to have. Did what? Did have that. Of course, I, this, I had the same kind that my parents had, which was, uh, you know, like just a hellish adversarial, you know, arguing, just toxic environment for children, you know, kind of thing. There was uh, future jesters a-brewing in that broth over there, in that jester household. So, uh, ironically, I got exactly what I fucking wanted, you know, and uh, it was, um, not, you know, not really what I wanted. So... And I tell you, man, it was a good thing. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm, I feel, you know, bad about being alone and not having that, you know, family thing anymore. But I don't think that was, a, I think that was a, you know, good decision to make. I don't think that was a bad thing to do. You know, even if I couldn't save myself, I saved those two precious uh, girls from that, uh, you know, really toxic, uh, you know, environment. I think it may have turned the tide for them. You know, they were both, I think, heading for, you know, exhibiting, you know, behavior problems or depression. And they both, uh, you know, really, aside from having to deal with the difficulty of their family breaking up, I think they both uh, have really done really well, taken off since we broke up. So for that reason, it's definitely worth it. Anyway, uh, you're listening to the ravings of a clown. I'm the clown, and then theirs was the ravings. By the way, we should play that song, Bob. Are we getting that? We can't get that on the queue tonight, but we're going to do it sometime. Uh, the song from which that line is from, I don't know if we've ever really talked about all the hidden symbolism here in Jester Radio, but as you can imagine, everything's from a song. And the ravings of a clown is a line from a Phil Oak song. So, um, and Jester Radio refers to a line from a Don McLean song. So, everything's a song. Here's Bobby Vinton on JR. Man, this is a sweet melody. Anyway, leave it right where it is. Please don't touch that dial. You're listening to uh, Jester Radio. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lonely 
I have nobody for my own. I'm so lonely. I'm Mr. Lonely. Wish I had someone to call on the phone. Now I'm a soldier, a lonely soldier, away from home, through no wish of my own. That's why I'm lonely. I'm Mr. Lonely. I wish that I could go back home. Letters, never a letter. I get no letters in the Oh, how I wonder, how is it I fail? I'm a soldier, a lonely soldier, away from home, through no wish of my own. That's why I'm lonely. I'm Mr. Lonely. I wish that I could go back home. I've been. 
Jester Radio. This is for all the lonely people thinking that life has passed them by. Don't give up until you drink from the silver cup. Whatever the fuck that is. Roy Orbison before that. Only the lonely know the heartache that I've been through. There's a guy who had no qualms whatsoever about whining. It's funny. I'm always, you know, worried. Oh, shit. I'm fucking whining too much. Everyone's going to think I'm such a pussy. Uh, but there's a guy who did nothing but fucking whine and cry and talk about how sad and lonely he was. And chicks found that hot. I don't know what's going <laughs> Fucking that shit's not working for me. Bobby Fitton started that and Mr. Lonely. Now, there's a guy who was pretty much actually crying in the middle of the song. That was fucking some sad-ass shit, my friend. I don't get a letter, I get nothing, you know, I'm a soldier far away from home, Christ. Hey, you're listening to the Ravings of a Clown, it's Sunday, 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 February the 10th, 
the year of our Lord, 2011, President Hugo Chavez today threatened to cut off oil sales to the United States in an economic war if ExxonMobil uh, wins court judgments to seize billions of dollars in Venezuelan assets. By the way, President Hugo Chavez, for those of you that don't know, he's the uh, so-called president of uh, Venezuela. He's actually a dictator, but, you know, president for life, one of these kind of wacky things. Um, and um, so he's threatening that if Exxon, who was suing him um, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, for billions of dollars, um, that if uh, Exxon wins, then he's going to take it out on the United States by not allowing them to have any more oil of his oil. Um, ExxonMobil has gone after the assets of the state oil company uh, Petróleos de Venezuela. Uh, in the United States, uh, British and Dutch courts as it challenges the nationalization of a multi-billion dollar oil project by Chavez's government. Now, nationalization is just a fancy word for stealing. Um, here's what poor countries do. They invite you know, rich companies in to teach them new technologies, and then when they learn it, they throw those companies out um, and steal all of their assets, saying that they have to for the good of the country. So this has been happening to oil companies since the beginning of time. Luckily, um, it, the investment's worth it because whatever money you make from the oil business is always a lot. But companies have been doing this. The Arab countries did it 50, 60 years ago to uh, Exxon and Sunoco and all these companies back then, um, BP, um, what they do is they go in, they spend billions and billions of dollars drilling uh, oil uh, wells, teaching them the technology, uh, you know, starting, you know, uh, building the, the oil refineries, uh, showing them, you know, the technology and how to refine oil to gasoline. And then when they're sure they learned everything nice and good, then they go, you know what? Sorry, get the fuck out. We're taking all your shit. And they throw the company out and they steal their property in the name of the people. But, of course, the money never gets to the pipple. It just gets to the dictator who steals the shit. So that's why you have, for example, these, these you know, princes, these so-called, you know, royalty in these Arab countries. They're not really royalty in the sense that you think of a king and a queen as going back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. These go back just to the last bloody coup 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, they're a, a, a tribal... Uh, warring people going back 10,000 years. And um, they always call themselves princes and kings, but the, the, they get all their money by, you know, just stealing, raping the land, the natural resources of their land. And that's why in Saudi Arabia and Egypt and, you know, in all these countries, the, uh, the, the, the royalty, the leaders live like fucking, you know, literally like kings, I mean, an unimaginable wealth. They literally wipe their ass with fucking, you know, $100 bills. And that's, and at the same time, they have such destitute poverty in the country and keep these people, uh, you know, ignorant of world affairs. And they're, you know, very provincial and superstitious and... 
So now he's threatening that if Exxon wins, Exxon's asked the court to freeze billions of uh, dollars worth of Venezuelan assets in the United States while they're suing them for their shit back. And so Chavez comes forward and says, well, if they win to get their shit back through the courts, um, then we're just going to cut off the U.S. supply of oil. ExxonMobil has gone after the assets of the oil company Petroleos de Venezuela, British and Dutch courts, as it challenges the nationalization of a multi-billion-dollar oil project by Chavez's government. A British court has issued an injunction, freezing as much as twelve billion dollars in assets. If you end up freezing Venezuelan assets and it harms us, he said, we're going to harm you. Uh, he he said during his weekly radio and TV pres- uh, program, "Hello, President." <laughs> He has a weekly show where he gets on, and that's the one good thing about being a dictator is nobody can tell you to shut the fuck up. <laughs> and once a week he's got a show uh, that's like a hello president, you know, when he's not like gunning down, you know, the opposition and, you know, purging his, uh, you know, cabinet. He's uh, chatting with the people of this country. Do you know how we're going to send oil? We're not going. We are going to send oil to the United States. Take note, Mr. Bush, Mr. Danger. Chavez has repeatedly, I swear to God, he's (laughs) fucking Mr. Danger. Chavez has repeatedly threatened to cut off oil shipments to the United States, which is Venezuela's number one client if Washington tries to out him. Chavez's warnings today appeared to extend the threat to attempts by oil companies to challenge his government's nationalization drive. Through lawsuits, I speak to the U.S. Empire because that's the master. Continue, and you will see that we won't send one drop of oil to the Empire of the United States. He said, "The outlaws of Exxon Mobil will never rob us." He, uh, Chavez said, accusing the Irving, Texas-based oil company of acting in concert with Washington. So he's now trying to sort of make it sound like the oil company, by suing to get their shit back, is robbing them. And, uh, you know, he's, of course, he's saying, and when Exxon wins, it's really the U.S. government that's behind it. Because why? Because he hates the U.S. government. ExxonMobil spokeswoman Margaret Ross said the company has no comment. And the U.S. Embassy spokeswoman in Caracas said, Jester, who? And she made him no comment. Venezuela accounted for about 12% of U.S. Crude oil imports in November, the latest figures available from the U.S. Energy Department. The 1.2.3 million barrels a day from Venezuela makes that uh, country the U.S.'s fourth biggest oil importer behind Canada, Saudi Arabia, and Mexico. Venezuela oil minister Rafael Ramirez has argued that court orders won by ExxonMobil will have no effect on the state oil company PDVSA and are merely transitory measures while Venezuela presents its case to the courts in New York and London. So on the one hand, you got this one retard saying, ah, oh, we don't care if they sue us. Uh, uh, it's no big deal. And on the other hand, you have the head loony bird saying that if Exxon wins, we're not going to give America any more oil, which is about as fucking likely. You know, he's been saying that for 10 years now. So I think many of you realize at this point that he's, um, and a lot of people just know this is a fact, um, that, uh, in fact, uh, Hugo Chavez is insane from gonorrhea. A lot of people that's sort of well-known in the uh, sort of politico-politico uh, 
Palatico world. Overnight fire destroyed a 610-year-old landmark in Seoul, South Korea, that was considered the top national treasure, officials said today. Police said the cause of the blaze was unclear, but one official said arson was suspected. The fire broke out on Sunday night, burned down the wooden structures at the top of the Nam Dum Yemen gate that once formed part of a wall that encircled the capital. Some 360 firefighters fought to bring the blaze under control, according to Lee Sang-yoon, an official with the National Emergency Management Agency. No one was injured, he said. Lee said that the arson was suspected in the blaze. However, Kim Young-soo, the head of a police station in central Seoul handling the case, told a televised news conference that it was too early to make that conclusion. The South Korean government opened the landmark gate, officially named Samanyamen, to public in, uh, in 2006 for the first time in nearly a century. The gate had been off-limits to the public since Japanese colonial authorities built an electric tramway nearby in 1907. Japan ruled the Korean uh, Peninsula uh, from 1910 to 1945. The gate was renovated in the 60s and again in 2005. Now it's burnt to shit. And they're suspecting uh, arson. So I can't comment on that. I was no near, nowhere near the joint. All right, the Grammys got underway. We're still expecting to hear from Victoria, hopefully, from the red carpet. She was supposed to be at some pre-pre-parties all day today. We heard from her yesterday. She was at some pre-pre-pre-parties last night, and uh, she IM'd in from the uh, her, her mobile device uh, from the kitchen of a party, but uh, we haven't heard from her today, so hopefully she'll call in later. The Grammys, meanwhile, got underway with a classic feel while Kanye West and an absent Amy Winehouse, two of the night's most compelling uh, storylines, were among the early leaders in uh, this evening's ceremony. West won three trophies at the, at the pre-telecast ceremony, Best Rap Solo Performance for Stronger, Best Rap uh, Song for Good Life, and Best uh, Rap Performance by a Duo Group for his collaboration with Come On, or Common, on Southside, Winehouse has also won three Best New Artist, Best Pop Vocal Album for Back to Back, Back to Black, and the Best Female Pop Vocals. This is the 50th anniversary of the Grammys, and the show emphasized that uh, point with its very first performance. Alicia Keys glammed up with a 50s style, sat at the piano, and sang Learning the Blues along with the black and white video performance from the long-gone legend Frankie Sinatra. Sinatra looked good in... Uh, for 150, didn't he? Prince joked moments later before introducing Alicia Keys as the winner for Best Female R&B Vocal for her smash, her smash No One. Carrie Underwood was another early performer with uh, her Revenge album uh, Before He Cheats, which had already earned two Grammys, including the Best Female category uh, for Country Vocal Performance. Bruce Springsteen garnered three pre-show Grammys, including Best Rock Song for Radio Nowhere. Other early winners included White Stripes, Justin Timberlake, Mary J. Blythe, who both had two each, Foo Fighters, Herbie Hancock, who I have my signature of in the wall here, and uh, even the Democratic presidential candidate Barack Obama for Best Spoken Word Album. And let me tell you, man, that was definitely worthy of a Grammy, that album. It was stirring and what? Though the pre-telecast ceremony where most of the Grammy's 110 categories are doled out, it's usually low on star wattage 
There are several big names on hand to accept their trophies, including Underwood, the Foos, and Brad Paisley. You couldn't keep me from actually getting this myself. Not the same when someone else gets this on your behalf, said Underwood. West was the leading nominee with eight nods. In any other year, he would have been the main storyline thanks to his history of award show tirades, his smash hit album Graduation, which was up for Album of the Year, and the shocking death of his mother late last year. But Winehouse, who wasn't even there, threatened to upstage West and everyone else. Troubled singer-songwriter was up for six awards, including Album of the Year for Back to Black. She was due to perform via satellite via her, from her native Britain, where she is uh, being treated for substance abuse at a rehab center. So apparently the kind of rehab that she's in feels that it's more important that she get to perform than, I guess get to get better hey you're listening to the ravings of a clown on jester radio don't mind me it's sunday february the 10th why not give us a call uh, 646-502-8600 is the, uh, the number and it's the brothers gib with another beautiful melody you're on jr please don't touch that dial
Andrew Gold on Jest Radio with what uh, the uh, Poe uh, calls uh, possibly the worst recording in the history of almost ever. BGs before that, lonely days, lonely nights. Where would I be without my woman? Sort of sounds a little backwards, right? That's where he'd be. Um, without his woman. You're tuned into the Roovings of Acclaim this Sunday, February the 10th, the year of our Lord, 2008. Onion News coming up in just a bit. If John Arcosa gets his way, American voters will never again have to wonder about the workings of the Electoral College and why it decides who sits in the White House. Thankfully, finally, somebody, thank you very much. Our crack research staff has finally come across one crackpot somewhere in America that actually has a plan. And this is what we've been talking about for weeks now. What is with these caucuses and these primaries where just a very tiny fraction of our population decides who's going to be running for president? And these people spend thousands, millions of dollars trying to persuade tiny groups of people whose interests are... God knows what. Who knows what kind of dick-sucking and pandering is required to get these, you know, because every single one counts. You know, the, these, you know they're, the, the, the adversaries are losing to each other by a matter of dozens of votes. So you've got to be really, you've got to walk a really fine line there. So, but this guy has come up with a way, and let me tell you, I read through this plan, and it's a good kind of stopgap thing because obviously the the best thing to do would be to change the Constitution. The writers, the crafters of the Constitution built in ways knowing, foreseeing that the country would have to evolve and that things would need to change, built in a way of changing the Constitution, but they made it purposely really hard so that um, most people have to agree to come up with a change, which is a really good thing because it's got to mean that, you know, Almost everybody wants to change. But listen to this guy's idea. He says that he's behind a push to have the state circumvent the uh, odd political math of the Electoral College and ensure that the presidency always goes to the winner of the popular vote. Basically, states would promise to award their electoral votes to the candidate with the most support nationwide, regardless of who carries that particular state. So everybody sort of promises, signs on to go with the popular winner. And that would make the Electoral College follow the popular vote instead of the other way around. We're just coming along and saying, why not add up the votes of all 50 states, award the electoral votes to the 50-state winner, said Koza, chairman of the National Popular Vote Inc., I think the candidate who gets the most votes should win the office. The proposal is aimed at preventing a repeat of what happened in the 2000 election where Al Gore got most of the votes nationwide, but George W. Bush put together enough victories in key states to win a majority of the Electoral College and capture the White House. So far, Maryland and New Jersey have signed up for the plan. Legislation that would include Illinois is on the governor's desk, but dozens more states would have to join before the plan could take effect. The idea is a long shot, but it appears to be easier than the approach tried previously, uh, that is amending the Constitution, which takes approval by Congress and then ratification by 38 states. 
The Electoral College was originally um, set up to make the final decision on who becomes president. Each state has a certain number of votes in the college based on the size of its congressional delegation. Often all the state's electoral votes are given to whomever wins that state's popular vote. For instance, even someone who wins New York by a single percentage point, 51 to 49, will get 31, all the state's electoral votes. And this creates problems. One is that candidates can ignore voters in the states that aren't competitive. If the Democrat is clearly going to win a state, the Republican has no reason to court its minority of GOP voters there, and instead it's going to focus on other states. Another problem is that the possibility of a result like that in 2000, where one candidate gets more votes overall, but the other candidate gets narrow victories in just the right states to eke out a majority in the Electoral College. And the national popular vote campaign says that its plan would change that. What's important to the country is that it would make presidential campaigns a 50-state exercise, said Koza. Uh, and this is the important thing. This is what I've been talking about for the past few weeks. We have to move away from a republic, a system of a pyramid of steps where we vote for people who vote for people who vote for people to a true democracy. What I believe our forefathers envisioned ultimately, which is why they built in this system to allow this change, um, ultimately to a true democracy. So here's how it works. States forge an agreement to change the way they allocate general election votes. The agreement would take effect once it's been approved by the states with a majority in the Electoral College, or in other words, as soon as you have states that all of their electoral numbers add up to 270 votes, then it would sprang into action. At one point, the states would begin awarding their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, regardless of who carries that state. If the candidates tend uh, uh, tied to a particular vote, each state would give its electoral votes to the candidate who carried that particular state, basically the same system they have now. If it's a tie then they give all the votes to those, you know, to whoever gets that state. So, you know, I mean, you know, there are people who say that the Electoral College is important because that way the smaller states get fairer representation, but why should smaller states get fairer representation? What's the point of promoting the influence of a smaller state? If they're smaller, then they should get less influence. And if they have fewer people in the state, um, you know, wh why are we sort of, um, g you know, giving this sort of uh, um, special status to each individual state? Because the president isn't the president of the states. He's the president of each individual American. That's the difference. You're not voting for state senators. You're not voting for governor. You're not voting for somebody that is answerable to the state. You're voting for the guy who's answerable to every single American. He's the executive of the country. So who, shouldn't he be elected by popular vote? Even in a, like George Carlin said, even in a phony democracy like we have, the people should get what they want sometimes. Young Rascals on JR, please don't touch that dial. More of what you tune in to Jess the Radio for.
Free Dog Night on Just Radio 1 is the loneliest number that you'll ever do, my friend. Young Rascals before that, been lonely too long. You're listening to the ravings of a clown this Sunday, February the 10th, the year of our Lord 2003, hanging in the Just Radio chat room. Why not stop by and say hi? Don't be shy. Time now for your Onion News. Local resident of Salem, Oregon, Stephen Bertram, is fed up with girlfriend Alicia Moss's incessant need to do stuff. A visibly frustrated Bertram reported on Monday, according to the 31-year-old maintenance technician, Moss, 29, regularly insists that the couple engage in an endless series of activities, things, and events at various times of the day. Despite the fact that Bertram would often prefer not to do such stuff. Just yesterday, she was going on and on about how she wanted to see a movie, said Bertram, noting that he had, after repeated requests, taken the demanding Moss to a local cineplex only two months prior. How many movies does a person need to see in a year? I mean, I just want to relax. Though he and Moss have dated for almost two years, Bertram reportedly did not recognize the severity of his girlfriend's near-chronic dependence on going out of the house and doing stuff until six months ago when she insisted the two attend a free outdoor concert in the neighborhood. Since that time, Moss has asked an estimated 11 times to be taken to dinner, 17 to go grocery shopping, and on 20 separate occasions has requested a desire to go on a meandering walk without any fixed destination, purpose, or time limit. The precise number of incidents, Bertram said, is difficult to determine, as Moss oftentimes enlisted him in activities without even first asking, including initiating seemingly pointless conversations, lacking any definitive context or subject matter, as well as making plans with coworkers, family members, friends, old roommates, people upstairs, and acquaintances Bertram doesn't even know. In addition, an alarming majority of the activities Moss suggests involves standing, I don't know if I can live like this, Bertram said. On Saturday, I was excited to sit back and watch some TV. And then she reminds me that uh, Jeremy, Bertram's best friend, uh, is having his birthday party. And the next thing you know, I'm getting up, throwing pants on, hanging out with people all night. For once, I'd like to do what I want to do, Bertram continued. She always wants to go somewhere or look at something. Bertram said that for several weeks, he attempted to deflect Moz's demands or otherwise dissuade her from pursuing activities outside their one-bedroom apartment through a series of complex excuses, including a feigned lower back injury, but this met with little success. Recently, he's tried to compromise by purchasing an Xbox 360 and several multiplayer games for the two of them to use together, as well as upgrading the couple's Netflix account to allow five DVDs at a time. Maz's, however, obsession has shown no signs of abating, and on uh, Sunday she volunteered herself and Bertram to walk the neighbor's dog when they go on vacation next week. <laughs> mm. uh, also, uh, what else in the uh, The following news? is brought to you by the all-new... T- what was that? I don't know either. Let's see what it was. The following is brought to you by the all-new 2009 Toyota Corolla. Oh, cool. 
I'm Juliana McCannis, sitting in for Clifford Baines, who is at a Michael Kors sample sale. The Iraqi government is currently debating a new law which would create a mandatory five-day waiting period for the purchase of all explosive suicide vests. Is this a violation of an Iraqi citizen's right to own a suicide bomb? You know, this, is, this law is good. It's a waiting period. It just makes sure if someone is going to blow themselves up, he's had the time to think about the decision. We don't need new suicide vest laws. What we just need to do is enforce the ones that are already in place. And look at the restrictions that are already on the suicide vest. You, you can't have napalm, for example. A nuclear vest you can't have. I don't think it is fair to be treated as a criminal for simply using a suicide vest in a responsible and proper manner. We're looking for a waiting period. That's all we're asking. I mean, I would like to see an outright ban myself. I, I, I don't know why would. we need these. How are you going to take out people? Large amounts of people. Right, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there are so many practical uses. Certainly. Um, Settling uh, uh, legitimate family feuds, uh, unpaid dowries, perhaps. Right, and it's part of a collector's item uh, for the embroidery, for instance. Very, very beautiful. The colors of the wires and the way they are You know that this industry has only one goal, and that goal is to sell more vests. They don't care who blows up. They don't care if you're young or old. They don't care if you're Sunni no, or Shiite. Number one, they do care who they blow up. But number two, the way I knew them growing up, it was a tradition. The family got around. Right. They gathered explosives from but around the neighborhood and they built a vest. There are many suicide vest enthusiasts who feel that Iraq should not ban them outright, but should simply focus on training and education. I agree. If you have a suicide vest, you want to separate the detonator from the vest itself. You know, you have to yeah, keep children right. safe. I also think it is a bad idea to give it to children. It's a waste. They're very short, and the exploding shrapnel is usually flying too low to do any damage whatsoever. So right. Well, if you're going to use effective. a suicide yeah. vest, you just get yourself to a range and demonstrate you know how to use it. Certainly. And, and if you're going to have one, make sure you keep them away from kerosene-soaked American flags. This is how my brother died. It, it just, oh, you know, Well, he was careless. I mean, yeah. you know. All right. So there you have <laughs> There you have, that's the panel they were discussing on the five-day waiting list uh, requirement for uh, suicide vests in Iraq. And it's good to know that they're sort of democratizing themselves over there, and they're learning to, um, you know. Uh, more uh, on your news. Uh, despite uh, urgent pleas to the contrary, uh, landlord Arnold Wynn remained unconvinced that the heat in Ted Meyer's apartment is not on. According to the 57-year-old building owner, in a telephone conversation with the tenant today, no, uh, it's on all right, said Wynn, audibly displaying his disbelief in a 26-year-old Meyer's repeated assertions that he was freezing. Wynn bolstered his claim by explaining that the thermostat was replaced just two years ago that the upstairs neighbors hadn't said anything, and the fact that you shouldn't pump too much heat in there anyway because it's just going to dry you out. You didn't mess with the valve, did you? Because you're not supposed to mess with the valve when then put Myers on hold in order to go check with the maintenance guy, Carlos, who immediately confirmed that Myers' heat was definitely on. Uh, Dateline, Laredo, Texas, this time... Unlike the time you moved in with your alcoholic chick from New Jersey, this time you and your buddy stole those tires from that warehouse, or the time you uh, ended up on Interstate 35 with only a $5 bill in your pocket, will be different. Visibly optimistic, you asserted to yourself Monday, I can honestly say that I've learned from my past mistakes, and I really thought things as much as I possibly can, you said.
adding that this time you're sure you've got a foolproof money-making scheme to pay back all your debts to that guy, Wayne. The future is wide open. Things are going to change. I can feel it. You further asserted that this time you would definitely not get the baby involved. Dateline Washington Deputy Secretary of Agriculture Charles F. Connor told reporters on Tuesday that he plans to meet later this week with President George W. Bush down in the holler, just up over the creek, where it's sometimes hard to tell where the fireflies end and the stars begin. I done told George that we need to talk about that $37 billion farm bill he's fixing to veto, said Connor who um, last met with Bush in June under them big uh, uh, old oak bluffs back where it felt like summer, stretched clearer on out forever. Seems to me that he oughtn't be letting it become law on account of it containing increased crop loan rates and target prices. I tell you, though, that boy do go on sometimes. President could not be reached for comment as he was out round back the shed making all kinds of ruckus with them hound dogs he loves so much. You've been listening to the Ravings of a Clown on Chester Radio this Sunday, February the 10th, the year of our Lord, 2007. Yep, you got me, finally. After, I think, Espo, <laughs> we said it like an hour ago, Louie busted me straight clean open, started with Martha and the Vandals, and I'm ready for love. Sounds like a kind of a hopeful song. But that haunting lyric as I stand alone on this moonful night, for the first time I feel alone in life. And uh, John Lennon uh, has followed that with isolation. Gilbert O'Sullivan, Alone Again Naturally. Bobby Vinton with Mr. Lonely. Roy Orbison singing for the lonely. As Bruce said, only the lonely. America did lonely people. BG's Lonely Days. Lonely Nights, Where Would I Be Without My Woman, Andrew Gold, Lonely Boy, which S. Poe clearly said may be the very worst song ever recorded, ever. Young Rascal's Been Lonely Too Long, great uh, early uh, pop R&B, Three Dog Night, one. Doesn't have the word lonely in the title, but one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. There is no doubt about that. Nothing lonelier than that one. Take it from your old pal, the jester. Who knows that for a fact? And as you look around this evening and see, you know, who you got, you know, sometimes uh, they're not exactly, uh, you know, what you're looking for. Sometimes uh, they have their problems. And, but, uh, you know, take it from your old pal, the jester, having somebody there, unless it's a really destructive, you know, kind of relationship. I'm not promoting... Uh, you know, like a kind of Christian adherence to a relationship. But unless you got something, you know, really destructive going on, then, you know, count your fucking lucky stars and, um, and you know, just think about how bad it can be. Because uh, it could be bad. Hey, just a few more minutes to get in uh, what your last comments Six four six five zero two eighty six hundred gets you on the air. Uh, you're listening to the ravings of a clown on Jester Radio. Hey there. Hey, lonely girl, get at your ass over here. It's Eddie Hallman on JR. Please don't touch that dial. 
but today again I ride. Oh, I see her face everywhere I go, on the street and even at the picture show. Have you seen her? Oh, you have seen her? Another day comes to an end, and I'm looking for a letter or something. You know, it's funny. I thought I had her in the palm of my hand. Isn't that funny how that shit happens? I thought I was set, Jack. And then, poof, 
Where'd she go? The Shy Lights on Jest Radio goes out to S. Poe. Earl, uh, I mean, Eddie Holman uh, started that set. Hey there, Lonely Girl, both singing in the, pretty much the same range. You've been listening to the Ravings of a Clown this Monday, February the 11th, uh, the year of us, this uh, Sunday, I should say, February the 10th, the year of our Lord, 2008. Although it's Monday, going to be Monday in a minute. Uh, thanks so very much for stopping by. Extra special thanks to Louie and S. Poe for stopping by the Jest Radio chat room for Rupert to uh, stop by the um, and give us a call. So sad uh, we didn't get a chance to get more calls in. And uh, we're hoping uh, to do that. And take it from the old Jester. If you got something going right now with somebody there, somebody, you know, who may have let you down, but, you know, they are there. And, man, there's there are points for being there, you know. I'll... I'll uh, I'll leave you with this uh, story. My first great love was, as you know, Betsy, the first uh, you know girl who you know would have sex with me on a regular basis, even though she pretty much knew what the deal was with me, and she was very smart. You know, it was the first real smart chick that I was fucking, and she was just brilliant. And we talked about sex a lot, and we had a very a sophisticated relationship at whatever age we were. I don't know. I think I was 16 or 17, and she was 17 or 18. And then the next year, she went off to college, and I went and diligently went up to see her as much as I could and forged through the snow. And uh, uh, and then eventually she met some other guy, and his name was Tony. Really sort of ripped my gizzard. Uh, and I sort of sensed that something was up because I called her and I'm like, I'm coming up this weekend. She was like, yeah. And I got this like, hmm, okay, let's try that again. You know, okay, I love you. She was like, ditto. And I was like, what? But the ditto? Why aren't you saying I love you back to me in front of who are you not saying that? But she was off in college and I was, you know, stuck at home at high school. And I raced up to see her the following weekend and I just my mind was just filled with all these torturesome thoughts. I mean, you know, man, how I could do, you know, uh, on myself. And uh, I had to, you know, back in those days, this is before I, you know, had even a driver's license. So I, whatever I did, I had to take a bus, to take a train, to take another train, to take a, a bus. The whole thing, like, took five or six hours. Um, and it literally was all those things I just said, no exaggeration. And by the time I got there, you know, I was exhausted and everything. And um, she was very cold and distant. And then she said that she was thinking about having a temporary separation. And so there was like a lot of dead air. I really didn't know how to deal with it. My heart was just like, I really felt like this. First time I really felt that like cold, sick feeling in my throat, like I was going to die uh and uh, from, like, the, the, the rejection, you know, kind of thing. And um, after, like, this really long period, could have been hours, you know, really, just sitting there sort of staring at the wall, agog and a gag, in her teeny tiny little dorm, which was pretty much the size of her bed. Uh, at one point I said, so what does this guy, Tony, have that I don't have? Sort of a stupid thing for a 16-year-old kid to say, 
but I just sort of wanted to get the probably just wanted to get the conversation going, or I don't know what the fuck. I wanted some kind of explanation, you know, like why would you pick this guy over me? And these are the words that she said to me, my friend, as heavy and as smart as she was. Maybe partially this was blurting this out, or maybe she really meant for me to fully understand the importance of presence over almost everything. I said to her, what is it this guy has that I don't have? That, that What does this guy give you that I can't give you? And she said, two words, blew my fucking mind. She said, he's here. And so, I leave you. And shall remain your humble servant, the jester. And I'll see you tomorrow. Good night. When I was young. Just for fun Those days are gone Living alone I think of all the friends I've known But when I dial the telephone Nobody's home